Good morning. It is always good to be with you. Uh, This past week, Lauren and I spent some time in Houston with her family. Uh, Her grandfather, Bill Ferguson, passed away on Monday. Uh, He had been battling Parkinson's for the better part of a decade uh, and in many ways uh, was ready uh, to go home. And I just want to thank you. Uh, so many of you called and sent emails and notes and text messages to Lauren. Uh, she's not here this morning. Riley woke up with a fever this morning. We're trying to get her antibiotics so she doesn't miss VBS uh, tomorrow night. But I just want to thank you for that. Um, we are so blessed by you as a church family. Uh, and it's times like funerals and, and other life events that are difficult like that where I don't know how people who don't have church get through those things. Uh, I don't want to thank you for that. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, and we want to open our hearts to your word. We want to open our, our imaginations to your story. And as we open up the, the pages of scripture to the story of Esther, we pray that you would speak directly to each one of us, that we would hear what your Holy Spirit is trying to help us hear. And God, I have no idea exactly what it is that every single person in this room needs to hear, and so I entrust the next few minutes we share together to you and ask for your wisdom and for your guidance and ask that each of us would listen, not with our our defenses up, not with shields up around our heart, but that we would trust you and trust what you say to us is the truth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we all have times in life and times when we look at the world and we ask as people of faith, where is God in all this? I mean, what, what is God up to? What, what's God doing? Every time I turn the news on lately, I have those questions rise to the surface of my heart. Where is God in all this? What, what is God up to? What is God doing? Because I, I don't have answers to some of the, the basic ongoing struggles that I know I face in my own life and that I know we face together in our shared life. That there are things going wrong in our world that I just don't know how to fix. And I am relatively certain that nobody on camera knows how to fix it either. That we, we just have to admit, we, we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending that we don't see the things that make us scared, the things that make, make us anxious, and the things that cause us to ask, where is God in all this? The story of Esther is wrestling with that question. In 167 verses, God's name isn't mentioned one time. God's name never occurs in the book of Esther. And yet, the book of Esther, the story of Esther, is in the pages of Scripture. And so we have to start to ask ourselves, why would a book that doesn't ever mention God be in God's book, right? Why would a chapter of that story be a part of God's story? And I think it's because that reading Esther, opening up the story of Esther, is something like trying to read our own lives in real time. Because we look at what's happening around us, 
we realize we're not nearly as in control as we want to be. We're not nearly as in control as we think we used to be. Nobody's listening to us the way they used to when it comes to the voice of Christianity in North America. And we start to wonder where things are headed. If, if we don't have a seat at, at the table of power, we're pretty much convinced, and I understand why, that things can only get worse. That would have been worse. I almost, <laughs> almost tripped. I've had that nightmare like 300 times in my life, and it almost came true. So, so we know where, where God's people are when they're writing and telling and listening to the story of Esther, which is the world seems to not care very much about what God wants. The world seems to not care, care very much about what, what we want as God's people. So now what? And, and what we have to decide early on is when we look at what's happening, the events in our world and in our lives, can we find places where nobody else might see it, but as people of faith, we see God at work. But we, what Esther's going to, to tell us, what it's going to remind us, is we have to make the choice to name those places. Nobody's going to do that for us. We, we have to have the courage to say, I believe that God is doing this. I believe that God could be using this situation in this way. I believe God could be using you in this way. See, so many other places in Scripture, we read it and we think it's obvious that God's there, that God's at work, that God's showing up and doing the things that people expect God to do. But in Esther, you have to have eyes of faith to see where God is. Otherwise, it's just kind of a, a bunch of random events that that go in a certain direction, and it's entertaining, and it, it kind of captures your imagination, but it's a bunch of coincidences, one after the other. And yet, the question would be, can we find places, even though the book's not going to help us, can we find places where we believe God is at work? And then in learning to do that in the story of Esther, can we find places in our own lives where we, f- we have courage to say, what if? Could this be what God is doing in my life, in your life, in the life of the world? Okay, so it all starts with a guy named King Xerxes deciding to throw a party in honor of himself. He probably had a really bad hairdo. It's that kind of personality, right? If I'm going to throw a party, if I'm going to spend a lot of money... It might as well be about me. So he throws this party. And everybody who's at it's a week long. Everybody has more than they can eat, more than they can drink. And they get to the end of the week. And then it's the main event as far as King Xerxes is, is, uh, is thinking, okay, I want, how do I really end this thing with a bang? I'm going to bring out my wife who's beautiful and I'm going to show her off to everybody. So he sends word to Queen Vashti. Get ready. I want everyone to see you. This is the way this, this great party is going to end. And she sends word back to him that she doesn't want to be a trophy wife. She doesn't want to be paraded around in front of all of his friends. And she's not coming. 
Now, can you imagine how frustrated the most powerful man in the empire at the time is when his own wife says, yeah, I I received your command and I'm just not going to obey it. He's not going to let that happen. Not with everyone watching, and everyone's watching because he wants everyone to be watching. And so he immediately decides that she can no longer, if she's not going to do exactly what he says when he says it, she's no longer going to have her position. She's not going to be the queen. So he banishes her from his presence, and he launches a nationwide search to find the new queen. This would be a reality TV show if it were happening now. It would. So they're going to look all over the empire to find Queen Vashti's replacement. And the main two things he wants is beauty and obedience. He wants his new queen to do exactly what he says when he says it. Because he's the most powerful person in the world and he he needs to get what he wants. So messengers go all over. They hold auditions. No, they don't hold auditions. They find beautiful young virgins and they decide. You don't, there's no questions asked here. You're being recruited into this strange royal contest. And a young woman named Esther is one of those people. Now she's got three things going against her from the very beginning. The first is she is born a woman into a man's world, right? We know that from the very beginning. If if Queen Vashti doesn't do exactly what she's told to do, she's out of the picture. The second thing is she's born a Jew in a world that's stacked against the Jews. This is, this is way beyond the golden age of God's people. This is, this is to the place where they have everything has fallen apart. They've been scattered throughout the, the world. They don't really have a place. They don't really have a sense of who they are as a people. They, they are convinced that their best days are behind them. And nobody really cares much about them. So why would they care about Esther? And the third thing that we learn is that she lost her, her parents at a very young age. She's an orphan in a world, in an ancient world, that often considered orphans as problems more than people. She is, in other words, the least important person you can imagine in the story. But we have a God who is absolutely committed to using people the world would call the least of these to do the most amazing things. So Esther gets recruited into this strange contest to be the next queen. And I'm guessing every woman is hoping they'll lose. Right? That can't be something they really, really want. They have no choice in the matter. And so there's this this process of people being chosen and people being not chosen. And finally, when we get to the very end, because of her amazing beauty, Esther is chosen as the one who will first be presented to the king. Now, nothing's sure at that point. If the king sees her and doesn't like her or isn't attracted to her, she's going to be discarded like anybody else. But she's, she's going to be their first try. They spend a year getting her ready for that moment. And when that moment comes, the king sees her, and he is overwhelmed by her beauty. To the point that he names her queen before he's even asked her much of anything about who she is or where she comes from, her family, any of that. He doesn't care about any of that. 
He cares about how she looks and how it's going to make him look for her to be his queen. That, that little detail of him leaping before he looks at anything other than her appearance, that's going to matter later. It's an opening for God to work. Now, Esther also has a cousin who took her in because she was an orphan, a much, much, much older cousin. I... <laughs> I'm just, it said it in the commentary, so I felt like I needed. (laughs) So he raises her, and he's nervous for her, right? It's like a, a father. And so he starts to hang around the royal palace because he's just trying to watch out for her. And he knows that when there's power, there's politics. And when there's politics, people get hurt, right? People get used. And so he's listening, and he's, he's trying to find out if anything's going to go wrong for Esther. And he overhears a plot of some people who are getting ready to try to get the king out of the way to assassinate him. And so he sends word to Esther about it, and she ends up telling the king about it. And, and it turns out, after they investigate it, that there's something to it, that it wasn't just a rumor, that people really were trying to get rid of the king. And so the, the king is extremely thankful for that, but he never tells Mordecai, thank you. Instead, what he does is he has the the account written down in the history scrolls. Okay, now, that little oversight, that's going to matter later. It's an opening for God to work. Now, the other thing we find out is in the meantime, the, the king finds this royal advisor named Haman that for whatever reason he really trusts and he really likes, and so he raises Haman up to a point where he is second in command. I mean, he answers only to the king, and everyone beneath Haman answers to him. And everybody, once they figure that out, starts to do whatever they can to make sure that they're in Haman's good graces. Everyone except for Mordecai. And we're never really told exactly why. Mordecai won't play the the politics game, that he won't honor him in the way that everybody else is honoring him and bow down and act scared. We, We don't know what's going on in Mordecai's heart. And it may be good motivations, it may be less than good motivations. But whatever it is, Haman notices Mordecai and the fact that he thinks of all the people in the empire, he doesn't have to show respect to Haman. And even though Haman has all kinds of power and all kinds of people trying to impress him, this one person who won't drives him crazy. And he gets to the point where he's obsessed. And he wants to get rid of Mordecai, except for... Again, if this was a movie, maybe more like a mafia movie or something, he decides he doesn't want to just get rid of Mordecai. He wants to get rid of everyone Mordecai cares about. The Jews, right? Everybody. Here's the problem. He's so fixated on Mordecai as a person, he doesn't, ever, he doesn't ask enough questions to figure out who else is related to Mordecai, who's a part of Mordecai's family. We know it's Esther. He doesn't. And that oversight, that little detail, it's going to matter later. It's an opening for God to work. Now, when Esther hears that Haman's trying to figure out a way to get rid of Mordecai and all of the rest of the Jewish people, she's obviously terrified about it. And Mordecai gets worried because not only is it some vague plan, Haman gets a date set. He works the king over and he, he says, I want there to be a date where this group of people in your empire who are troublesome people will be completely annihilated on this day. 
Well, once that happens, everybody in the story knows that time is running out. And so Mordecai tells Esther, you, you've got to do something. And she knows that at the very least what that's going to include is going into the presence of the king without first being invited. And in this empire, if anybody goes into the presence of the king without being invited first, they usually lose their lives. It's that severe of a penalty. And that's what Mordecai is asking her to risk for the sake of her people. If you've got your Bible, open up to Esther chapter 4. We'll be reading starting in verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they must be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is not the kind of family conversation anybody wants to have. And even with everything at stake, and even with saying some really difficult things to Esther, Mordecai does not use God's name to force her into doing something she isn't willing to do. He doesn't say, I know for a fact that God put you in this royal position for such a time as this. He shows some humility. He demonstrates that it's faith and not certainty, right? It's something he wants to believe is true, that he can't be sure absolutely is true, so he says it as honestly as he can. What if this is why you're in this position? Because he knows that it wouldn't be right to try to force Esther to do this thing, this this. Risking of her life for the life of her people unless she chooses it. So he asks a question that I think she has to wrestle with for those three days. And I love in scripture that every time we find the time period of three days passing, something amazing happens. And so she she asks them to fast and pray for her so that she'll have wisdom to know what to do. 
Because Mordecai can't answer that question for her. You can't answer that question for her. I can't answer that question for her. And more importantly, as we read this story and realize it's a part of our stories, we can't answer this question for one another. What if you're in the position you're in? What if you have the role that you have in your life for such a time as this? So she, she prays and she thinks, And she goes. And when the king sees her waiting out in the outer part of the court, he is overcome once again with her beauty. And he extends that golden scepter. And he asks her, What do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. He's making this extravagant promise without strings attached, without really knowing what's going on. That's going to matter later. It's an opening for God to work. And she says, you know what I really want? I just, I want to, I want to have a banquet with you and Haman. Uh, I I just, I want to spend some time talking to you. And the king is overwhelmed that when he offers her half the world and everything in it, all she asks for is a meal. God works through moments where people sit down at a table together and they talk. So they they have this banquet. It's it's funny. As soon as he says, you know, what do you want? She says, I want a dinner with you and Haman. He sends servants to go get Haman and make sure he comes on time with a smile on his face. And they have this banquet. And the king asks her at the banquet, what, what would you like? And she, I think, out of being scared, the Bible doesn't say, I think out of being terrified to try to confront the king and Haman with this wicked thing that Haman's done, she said, all she can bring herself to say is, well, what I really want is to have dinner with you again. Right? She's got to buy herself a little bit of time. I think we all know what it's like to, to wrestle with having this moment and thinking I'm ready to say something and then I'm not quite ready to say it. So she, she says, I just want to have dinner with you one more time. And so both Haman and the king leave in high spirits. Haman, on his way home, happens to pass by Mordecai, who I, I don't know exactly how Mordecai gets in, you know, in Haman's mind, but whatever it is, as soon as he passes him, he's angry because he thinks, here I've had this wonderful evening where I alone, I was in the presence of the king and the queen. Nobody else was invited to this exclusive party but me. And then he has to pass this guy who, who just won't show him proper respect. And so it enrages him. And when he gets home, he starts whining to his wife about it. And he says, I'm, I'm so important, and, and everybody knows how great I am, right? She doesn't say anything. And he says, And then there's this guy, and he drives me crazy, and just offhandedly. I mean, this is how wicked things are at the time. She says, why don't you put up a 75-foot pole in the front yard and impale Mordecai on it in the morning? I don't want to hear about it anymore. (laughs) And he goes, that's a great idea. I'm going to go down to Home Depot and get a 75-foot pole, and we're going to sharpen it, and we're going to get it. I want it right in a good place near the garden, and then, yeah. 
But in the middle of the night, the king can't sleep. And it's something as simple as the king not being able to sleep is an opening for God to work. So he asks for, I guess, to help him sleep. He asks for someone to come in and read the royal scrolls to him, the history scrolls. And it just so happens at dawn, while the servant's reading to him, that they get to that little entry that says, at some point earlier, there were some people that were trying to kill you, king, and a guy named Mordecai found out about the plot and told you about it, and it spared your life. And the king asks, did we ever do anything to thank Mordecai? And the servant says, no, we didn't ever do anything to thank Mordecai. At that very moment, Haman comes walking through the door. And he's getting ready to, to talk to the king about the 75-foot pole in his front yard and wanting to put Mordecai on it as, as uh, decoration for the yard. And, I mean, that's, that's how unhuman he views the, the Jewish people, right? And he's ready to have his whole speech. And the king asks him a question. And you can't, you can't make this stuff up to make it any more ironic and funny. He comes in, and he's ready to, to say something. And the king just offhandedly says, Hey, if there was a really special guy that you really wanted to thank, what would you do, Haman? And Haman assumes it's him. Like the king's trying to be subtle to surprise him. And he goes, well, if, if I had a really special guy in my life that I wanted to thank for something he'd done for me, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd like to have, I mean, you should give this guy a, a royal robe. And then, I don't know, you've got some royal horses lying around, right? Give, give him a, a royal horse and then have somebody lead him through the streets on a one-man parade telling everybody this is how the king treats people that he wants to honor. I think that would be great. And the king goes, yeah, that's a great idea. There's this guy named Mordecai. Now, I don't want you to drop any of those details. You make sure you do everything you just said for him. In fact, I'd like you to be the guy who leads him through the streets. All day long, Haman has to walk Mordecai, who I'm guessing didn't make the day go easy. <laughs> you missed the street. <laughs> so Haman does this thing. He, he's humiliated. He's embarrassed. I'm sure his wife didn't e just wouldn't even talk to him. And She's, just go to your dinner. You're still having dinner with the queen and the king. Have you forgotten? No, I haven't forgotten. He goes to have dinner with them. And this time, Esther has the courage <clears throat> to say what she needs to say. The king says, okay, you got me on pins and needles here. I keep offering you up to half the kingdom. You keep saying, all you want is a meal with me and Haman. What, what do you really want? And she says, I, I need you to know that somebody is trying to hurt me and everybody I care about. And not just hurt us, but kill us. Now you can imagine the king's response to that. See, the problem is he's never stopped to ask her where she's from and who her family is. And, and he's never connected that she's a, a Jew. 
that she's related to Mordecai, and that this date that's coming up where everyone in the empire is going to be given free license to wipe out the Jews from the face of the, the earth. He, he's never understood that's what's happening, and neither has Haman. And the moment that Haman starts to figure out what it is he has done without knowing it, he is terrified. But only he and Esther know at this point, until the king says, who is responsible for this? And she says this vile Haman. And the moment that she says his name, it's the end of his life. And he knows it. The king leaves the room. He's furious. He goes out into a a garden to contemplate Haman's fate. Haman already knows what's going to happen. So he starts to beg Esther and he falls down near her. And at that very moment, the king walks in and he actually thinks that Haman's trying to hurt Esther. And he says, that's it. And one of the servants helpfully says, well, you know, he just installed a 75-foot pole in his front yard. (laughs) And they impale him on it. And it is an ending that you would never see coming unless you had already read the story before. And... And if you were not a person of faith, you might think, this couldn't possibly, this series of events, it's, it's beyond believability. It's just, because by the end of the story, it's not just that Haman's taken out of the picture. The, the king puts Mordecai in his place and gives him the very same role. He's the second in command. And not only is this, this day of slaughter that's planned for the Jews undone, but Mordecai gets to gets to shape the future of the empire. All because Esther wrestled with the question, what if, what if you were put in this place for just this time? For just this moment? When everything was falling apart and nothing looked, looked good and, and they, they knew exactly how the story was going to end. They were going to be killed. Everyone they cared about, everyone they loved were going to be slaughtered. She wrestles with one question, and it changes everything. We're going to watch this story unfold, I assume, in not only musical, but comedic fashion in the next three nights. And we have a sense that this became one of the most important stories for the Jewish people as they continued to not have a temple to go to and they continued to feel outnumbered and they continued to feel unimportant. We have a sense that they would act this story out during a festival to remember that it's hard, it's so hard sometimes to see where God is and what God's doing. And instead of assuming that that God isn't present and that God isn't working because things are are going hard for us or difficult for us or the people we love. Shouldn't we be wrestling with this central question and that is, what if we're in this time and space for this moment? That God is working? That there are details we don't see and that the eyes of faith help us connect the dots that nobody else would connect. And we would find that even though maybe we aren't the ones who are running things, that God is still the king of this earth. That God is still the most powerful being in all of creation. 
and that God has not given up on us, that God has not abandoned us. We have to find the faith and the courage to name the places where we see God, to ask the questions of how do we partner with God, but it's not automatic. You know, I think sometimes we feel like the opposite of faith is doubt, but, but in my experience, the opposite of faith is certainty. It's assuming we already have it all figured out. When we don't have it all figured out, we have to choose to believe that that God is in this story, that God is putting us in places we need to be, that God is opening up opportunities for us. And if we're so concerned with, with how things have changed and how we don't have the same influence we used to have, we will miss the opportunities that God is trying to give us. So live with that question this week. Look at the world and the truth of all it is, the things that aren't going well, the things that are going well. Look at the details and through the eyes of faith, choose to find the places where you're going to say, I believe God is at work. I believe God is opening this door. I believe that God is protecting these people. I believe that God is calling me for such a time as this. And if you haven't already planned to come back to VBS tonight, come back. Because this is a story worth focusing on. This is a story worth thinking about. This is a story worth living. We're going to sing now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be standing in various places throughout this room to pray with you, to talk with you. They can answer any questions you might have about what it means to become a Christian and what we believe as a church. And so if, if you have anything that you want to talk about or pray about, I'm going to ask those couples, those elders to stand right now so you can kind of see where they are. Uh, Go to these people as together we stand and sing.